So the first thing that I think that we need to establish as men is what is our goal? What is the thing that God has given us to do? And there's a unique part to this, and then there's just something that's true for all of humanity. Something that has really fascinated me is I think that God has only given one ministry to the church, one ministry to men and women. It's the ministry of reconciliation. The thing that God has called men to do is to take things that are out of relationship, out of right relationship with one another, and to bring them back into harmony and right relationship. I think it's what men do. Um, any part of life becomes meaningful when it's a ministry of reconciliation. So uh, I used to be a woodwork teacher. I love, I built lots of furniture in my life. And uh, uh, well, I was an electrician, just a helper guy for a number of summers when I was at school. And the person, the people who built this room did a ministry of reconciliation. They, uh, they put in wiring and, and put a roof. And I'm super glad about the people who put in the air conditioning. And uh, what they did is they allowed us to be together. Uh, the trades are ministries of reconciliation. They're bringing us into right relationship with physical things. Uh, an accountant is a, is a, is, it's a ministry of reconciliation, right? You reconcile the books. Uh, if you're a teacher, you're reconciling people with right understanding. What we do is we take things that are out of harmony and we bring them into right relationship. It's what I do in my home. I'm a minister of reconciliation. When I walk into the room, we have 10 kids, as you heard. When I walk into, my room, in, into a room, they're all fighting. And uh, I come in as a minister of reconciliation, bringing peace and harmony wherever I go. It's what I do. It's how I roll. Now, one of the lies that I think men are told is that women are relational and men aren't. Have you ever been told that before? I'm sure that's not true. Who has a cat fight? There is a different way that we approach relationship, absolutely. But I think that God has built in us the ability to take things that are out of harmony and to bring them together and to reestablish peace and right government. I think God has given us this call, and I think he's given it to you. That whether you are in the marketplace, whether you're at home, whether you're hanging out with friends, we bring things into right relationship. It's what men do. We don't withdraw from those moments. We're not intimidated by those moments. We walk into wherever there's conflict, and we establish the peace of Christ in those places. I think it's our mandate. Lots more could be said about that, but we'll leave it at that for now. So how do we become successful in being people who can bring harmony and reconciliation into wherever we go? I think the temptation is to think that we need more effort, maybe more emotion, better techniques, these things can be helpful, but there's one thing that matters more than anything else, and it's our hearts. What undermines our calling, what undermines our masculinity more than anything else is simply this, selfishness. I, I wish it was more profound than that, but I'm sure it's true. One of the things that I find most upsetting in society today is when you think of single-parent homes, by and large, who's the single parent? That's not right. That's not right. We, have, uh, we only have actually three natural-born children to Debbie and I. Our second child, was a, uh, we adopted him from birth. And I still remember meeting the birth father. And uh, he comes over one day and he wants to meet his son. And uh, he sits down with us. He's there for about an, max, about an hour. And here's what he says. It sounds super noble. He says, I can see that you guys are going to be great parents. And what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to let you raise my son. And I'm thinking in my head, you jerk. 
you're manly enough to have sex and you can't follow through with what it creates. You jerk. We have, uh, we have six more children. Uh, uh, five of them come from the same mother. They all have different fathers. None of my kids know who their fathers are. There's rumors. I'm not sure that the mother knows who the fathers are, to be honest with you. And uh, she's an alcoholic. And the government took away her kids. And so she phoned us up and asked whether we would take her children. And uh, you can look at this alcoholic mom who is trying her best to raise five kids. And I'm asking, where are the men? Where are the men? The selfishness of men in our society. Men have talked to me. They say, look, uh, I don't force myself to have sex with anybody. But if they're willing, hey, I'm a man and I have needs. And... Uh, it's selfishness. And somehow, men need to regain their God-given responsibility and reject that selfishness and say, I am responsible to reconcile my children to God, to their mom, to me, to their friends. It's all I do as a parent. It's all you're ever doing is you're just reconciling all the time. I can tell you lots of stories about that. Invite me for a parenting seminar. Um, so if, if selfishness is the problem, what's the solution? Well, the solution is to have a good heart, to be other-centered, to care more about yourself than others. What we've done and I think this is, uh, so I'm not a sociologist, so if you are, just smile and pretend I know something. So what we have is, we have in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, we have headship in the home. And during that time, headship meant, woman, get me a beer. And then in the 60s and 70s, part of my language, women said, to hell with you, get your own beer. And then we have the feminist movement. Rightly so, Right? It was the abuse of authority. And so then the church, uh, um, the church uh, looks at this and goes, wow, look at how men have misused authority. That's horrible. That's horrible. That should never have happened. And so let's, let's rewrite scripture. And I have studied this stuff. You have no, uh, so much. Let's rewrite scripture and let's, Put in scripture hyper-equality. Now, men and women for sure are equal. Can you get amen with that? Okay, for sure men and women are equal. But equality does not equal sameness. And in an effort for men to avoid the abuse of their authority, we just wiped out authority and said, wow, that was an awkward moment in church history. And we just won't worry about authority anymore. A better response is to receive our authority, but receive it with a different heart. A heart of humility and servanthood instead of a heart of selfishness. This is a better response. So what we want to look at now is what, because this has got to be good news. I'm just making you feel bad so far. So what drives a selfish heart? What drives it? And this, for me, has been a, a radical revelation. And I think that the issue is fear. I did a study uh, a couple years ago on the word. Uh, uh, what I did is I went through every leader in the Bible, every single one. It doesn't take long anymore with electronics, but I did. I went through every single leader in the Bible, and I looked at what did God confront emotionally in leaders. And without exception, from Adam right through to the Apostle Paul, what is the primary thing that, that God says to leaders, and it's simply this, 
do not be afraid. The primary issue in receiving authority and walking in leadership, the primary issue that God highlights is the issue of fear, and we're using now the word in a negative way, anxiety, because there is positive fear, right? And so we're just describing negative fear. We're going to use the word anxiety. That is the issue that undermines your ability and my ability to reject selfishness and take responsibility for the well-being of others in our relational spheres. So let's unpack then what does fear and what is fear and anxiety. So I've already said point number one, anxiety is the main issue that God addresses in leaders. And here's the definition that we're going to be using. Anxiety is faithless concern. So uh, the re- uh, often anxiety feels positive because if you're anxious, it means that you care. And so when people who struggle with anxiety have a hard time pulling apart what's healthy and unhealthy because if you weren't anxious, it would mean that you didn't care. So Anxiety is care. It's caring about something. But it's caring in such a way that is faithless and doesn't see Jesus in any given moment. The example is Mark chapter 4, verse 40, where you have the living God asleep in a boat. And, uh, and the disciples saying, don't you care? They're afraid. Don't you care if, we're, if we drown? And he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have what? Faith. The opposite of anxiety is faith. And so the uh, 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 anxiety is caring about things, but in a faithless way. So here's the idea. Anxiety is what it feels like. And I have a have a counseling background, so just pardon me if I sound like a counselor. Anxiety is what it feels like to mistrust God is what it feels like. Now, I find that really, really helpful because sometimes for me, it's hard for me to tell when I'm walking in faith or not. I can't tell. Like, is this, you know, am I following Jesus right now and doing what he wants or am I not? Anxiety for me has become a way to tell whether I'm walking in faith or I'm walking in something else. That if I'm full of fear and anxiety, faith is not here. And so I'm not following Christ in that moment. Here's the problem with anxiety, is it's viral. Anxiety can consume us. It It is the most powerful of human emotions, and it can actually take over our whole lives. And we call them, you know, we talk about anxiety disorders and all those kinds of things. I think personally that we all have them. But, um... But it's what it feels like. Listen to this quote by Robert Bloch. I have no idea who he is, but I like his quote. Anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Here's what's true about our society, if I can speak so boldly on behalf of all of North America. Uh, Our society is chronically anxious chronically anxious. And to the degree that our societies have mistrusted God are becoming faithless, the anxiety in society is getting higher and higher and higher. The instability that I see in the next generation is absolutely overwhelming. There's nothing solid to stand on. It's all moving. I remember uh, way too long ago when I was taking an art history course uh, uh, in my first year university, we went through the, the history of Western art, starting with the Egyptians. And a period of art, like a, um, a style of art in the Egyptian period would last about 2,000 years. And then you would have a new style of art. And it kept moving forward until we got into the 21st century. And then there, a style of art would last for, for 10 years and then five years. And then now there's no more styles of art. The, everything is whatever anybody wants it to be. There's just, even in art, there's nothing stable and secure. In family, there's nothing stable or secure. Who really knows who God is? That's not stable or secure. How can I trust in anybody who just abuses me and misuses their authority? Everything is unstable. 
And so society is characterized by a lack of, by, by the presence of anxiety. I was talking with Troy as we were driving out here. Can somebody get me a glass of water, if you wouldn't mind? Um, and uh, he w had a great insight that economics is just based on fear. Like, why do you have insurance? Why are you going to buy one brand of clothes versus another? Why? It's all fear-based. I think I have been shocked at how much fear motivates me. I've never thought of myself as an anxious person. I just, pretty low-key, it's all good. And I don't really see myself as that. Thank you so much. I think fear, though, is epidemic, and it's rooted. It's the first negative emotion mentioned in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. It's the perfect example. Uh, in Genesis 3, what does the serpent say to the woman? Did God really say? What's the, how do you begin to sin? It's faithless. It's mistrust. And so what happens is you mistrust God. Did God really say? Is he really looking out for me? Does he really have my best interest at heart? Is he just e as egotistic as I am? Huh. I got this great idea. Since you can't trust God, why don't you trust yourself? And so then they trust themselves to define what right and wrong is. That's always where anxiety takes you. It's faithless concern. I'm worried. Can't trust you. I guess I've got to just trust myself. And the natural consequence of trusting self should be anxiety. Because we all know we aren't good enough to pull this thing off. And then we see, I was afraid, so I hid. Anxiety always leads you to one of two places. So I hid, and then he blames. But it's the woman that you put here with me, which now he's blaming God and the woman, and that's why I ate the fruit. He forgets to mention that he was standing there the whole time and saying nothing. But uh, again, that's that abdication of authority that I'm trying to emphasize. So anxiety then is faithless concern. Number two, uh, emotions now are the dashboard of our soul. Emotions, uh, men don't typically prefer to talk about emotions. They prefer to talk more factually. Uh, the helpful thing about talking about emotions is that they're honest. Uh, you can say stuff and twist words. Emotions are always the most honest indicator of where you're really at. Uh, so they act like the dashboard of your car to let you know what's going on under the hood. I find that incredibly helpful. Anxiety, then, is a primary emotion which gives rise to secondary emotions. Now, I'm going to put on my counseling hat, and if you can all imagine, let's, let's dream together. An emotion tree, isn't this special? I gotta somehow do that when I say an emotion tree. And so imagine if you, you know, an emotion tree, and it has little leaves, and all little leaves are different emotions, all right? Now, if you trace back all negative emotions like anger, depression, confusion, um, cynicism, uh, sadness, if you, trace, if you trace back all of those, those are called secondary emotions, to their root, what you'll find is that fear and anxiety drive all negative emotions. Now, uh, men have two primary emotions that we're particularly attracted to, anger and lust. And what's interesting is that if you try to fix anger or lust, it seldom works because they are secondary and they're coming from a root of fear and anxiety. And unless we can address the root issue, we'll, we'll stay angry. It's why if, you, if you've ever told uh, an angry person to stop being angry, it just makes them more upset, right? Because you can't stop being angry. Because actually the anger isn't the issue. What's driving the anger is a fear and anxiety about something. And unless that root is addressed, it will always manifest itself in unhealthy ways. It's a big deal. So anger, depression, confusion, shame, all of these are being driven 
by fear and anxiety. So rather than manage our feelings, which are always symptoms, so um, uh, feelings are honest, but fixing them seldom helps. Rather than manage our feelings, it is better to trace our feelings to their source and ask, what is motivating me right now, fear or faith? This becomes a tremendously helpful question. So rather than fix my depression, rather than fix my anger, rather than manage the exterior of my life, it's healthier to say, hold on, what's driving that anger right now? What's driving my confusion? What's making me depressed right now? And you'll find, if you trace it far enough back down the tree, you'll find that you're anxious about something. And it's manifesting itself in those ways. But the only way to get free is to swap fear for faith. Talk about how to do that more tomorrow. Point number three is anxiety and faith are choices. Now, this is hard to believe. But anxiety and faith are choices. Circumstances do not make us feel this or that. It's helpful to understand the difference between stress and anxiety. Stress is circumstantial. If, you're, if there's a whole bunch of deadlines at work and, you know, the pressure's on, that's stress. Stress, though, is not anxiety. Anxiety is our reaction to the stress. What's remarkable about Christians is we have the ability to be in tremendously stressful situations and walk in the peace of the Lord. So uh, people have seen this over and over and over again, that you'll, you'll see a, a stressful situation, and then one person will be freaking out, and another person, it's all good. And because it's actually not the circumstance that's driving it. It's what they believe about that circumstance. And it's the out of control and all those other things that they're feeling. That's really the problem. And, but what we have in our society is we have the way that we manage our anxiety is we reduce our stress. And so we have people in our church that live very, very tiny lives. Because pretty much everything is overwhelming them. And so in an effort to reduce anxiety, I'm making my life smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, when we just had four children, uh, everything's, everything's, going, everything's going relatively smoothly. And then we invite four more uh, boys into our home. And the anxiety, the stress in our home, immediately. And so, uh, so what my kids, my natural kids, ask me all the time is, uh, Mom and Dad, I'm really glad that we're, like, looking up for these other kids, but I'm wondering if I can have my own room again. Would that be okay? I just want my own room. You can do that Christian thing that you do, caring for orphans and whatever. But anyways, I'd like my own room, and then I'll come out every once in a while and help you, and then go back to my room. Is that okay? I go, absolutely not. Uh, these kids are a gift to you. The, the word to describe these, these four more bodies in our home is these are called stress. And what stress gives you the opportunity to do is to find Jesus in a way that you never would if you didn't have this stressful situation. So you can thank me later, but right now you get to bunk with so-and-so. He's a slob. You're a neat freak. This is going to be fun. And as you work that through, something changes inside of you. But if we think that the way that we're going to become anxiety-free people is by becoming stress-free people, you really can't be a Christian anymore. It's just not going to work. There's too much loving others going on that is going to disrupt your wonderful world. You know, people will say to me all the time, man, I don't know how you could do 10 kids. I don't get it. And, uh, you know, I have friends there. They're not following Jesus. And I go, they, they'll say to me, how do you do it? I go, I don't know. What do you do? Well, I says, by the time I get home from work, and then I have to go to the gym, and then I have to do hot yoga, 
and then I have to cook, and then I have to decompress after the gym and the hot yoga. There's just no more time left. And their life is totally full, and they live meaningless lives, and they're way more anxious than we are. Because they, they can't separate stress from anxiety. You doing okay with that? Does that make sense to you? Helpful, isn't it? Uh, so peace and joy, then, is a state of mind, not a set of circumstances. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Isn't that outstanding? Can you imagine what men would be like when we are, our emotional state is not determined by our surroundings, but determined by what Jesus Christ says? Can you imagine what kind of men we would be that we could walk into a place with the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring him into those stressful situations and we become ministers of reconciliation. What a powerful ministry we would have. And I think men are designed to do this. I, uh, I, I, I might, don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but uh, every once in a while, my wife gets a little stressed and anxious at home. And, uh, and it's, all, it's all happening. And, there, and when our house goes sideways, it goes sideways. And so she hollers for me. She says, Greg, would you get down here? These kids are freaking out. I can't handle them anymore. And she does that. She says it in love, of course. And, uh, and so I, I come downstairs, and this is what I do. You've got to look at me if you haven't been looking at me. This is what I do. I come downstairs, and I do this. I don't even say anything. I just look around. And they all look up at me. What is he going to do next? And they're all looking at me, and I smile at them. Thinking, this isn't going very well, is it? They go, no. I, go, I personally think it's super funny, because I've been having a great time upstairs. I don't know what you guys have been doing down here, but it doesn't look great. I just smile at them. And then they all calm down and are kinder. And then go back upstairs again. And then Debbie says to me, how do you do that? How do you make them do that? Come back tomorrow morning, and I'm going to give you the secret for how to do that. I, I am a carrier of the peace of the Lord Jesus. It's who I am. And when I walk into a room, so funny for Canadian talk like this because we're so insecure. But when I walk into a room, the peace of God follows is who I am. I bring that to wherever I go because I'm not anxious. If I can manage my anxiety, I'm the man that God has designed me to be. And if I submit to my anxiety, I am irrelevant, lonely, and depressed. And I'm telling you, it's about anxiety. I think it's men's biggest issue. Number four, we sin then in an attempt to manage our emotions without faith. Uh, here's my definition of sin. I've got lots of definitions of sin. This is one of them. Sin is anxiety management. Sin is anxiety management. Sin is saying, Jesus isn't anywhere around here, so I've got to take care of this on my own. That's what sin is. Sin says... Uh, I need to eat. Sorry, anxiety says I need to eat. God's not going to help me. I'll just take that. Steal. Uh, anxiety says uh, you're out of control in your home. God's not around. So the only way that you're going to reestablish control is by getting angry and forceful. You're going to make everybody behave. You're going to become the man of the house. Angry people are incredibly insecure and anxious. Here's the problem with the solutions that are faithless, otherwise known as sin, is today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. Uh, anxiety, uh, when we're anxious, we stop thinking. Uh, anxiety is a 
is called a primal emotion as well as a primary emotion. It's, uh, it's automatic. And so when we're anxious, all we're trying to do is survive the moment. And so we'll do whatever is necessary to get through this next moment. I'm, uh, I'm working with a guy in our church who keeps running away from home. And he runs away from home because he can't stay there. And so now he's living on the streets. Today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. You become angry, and then now everybody is estranged from you, and now you're even less connected than you were because your solution was faithless. Your lust that calmed you in a moment and that just everything went away for just a minute becomes tomorrow's problems. Sin, sin is always a shortcut to manage anxiety. Sin always promises immediate help. Does it not? Right? If you just do this, you're going to be better right now. Faith, which I hate, is always long-term. I hate that about faith. I like the miracle part of faith. That was a good one. But typically, faith is believing something in a journey. And sin always says, I can take care of that right now. You lonely? I can help you right now. It's going to take a minute. You're one click away from not feeling lonely anymore. One click away. I can help you with that. You feel out of control? I can help you with that right now. Sin is always offering an immediate solution. The reason why it doesn't work is because it's not addressing the anxiety and faithlessness that is the real problem that's making our life a mess. And if we can get down deep enough to our faith in Jesus Christ, which is not an abstraction, it's the most practical thing that you can do, then sin loses its power because it's no longer necessary. So if we deal with anxiety first, we deal with the seed before it flowers into destructive sin. And this is the good news of this message, that God wants to heal us at the level of our anxiety so that we don't have to get to the point of engaging in destructive sin and having to do all that backtracking and asking for forgiveness and reestablishing trust and all the other messiness that comes along with our sin. Jesus says, I can deal with the root of that before it becomes that other stuff that even you don't really want. So number five, anxiety often looks like under and over-functioning. Okay, this is, the, this is what tripped me up. Because I always thought that anxiety looked like over-functioning. I just, I don't know why I thought that, I just did. I thought that anxious people are always going, ah, and doing a bunch of things that are stupid. <laughs> like it's not really working, but they're just reacting. So I thought anxiety was over-functioning. What I didn't realize is that anxiety in me looks like under-functioning. Do you know what anxiety in me looks like? Saying to my wife, chill out. Calm down. That's anxiety. I'm speaking now right out of anxiety. She says, what are you doing? Uh, why don't you be like, I don't know, uh, me? And uh, look how calm I am. And what I didn't realize is that she was compensating for me ch emotionally checking out of our home. I would just emotionally check out because it was so overwhelming for me. I go to my happy place and just, you know, believe in Jesus or whatever. Anyways, being funny. And uh, I, just, I just escape. And she's all stressed out because she has concern. She can't find Christ there. I'm concerned too, but I can't handle it. And so I just withdraw. I have a hunch and I, I don't know if it's true, but I have a hunch that typical in men. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a cycle that men go through, and it's called ignore, explode. Where we ignore, 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 and then explode. And then ignore, 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 explode. 
So we get around to overfunctioning by exploding, but our modus operandi, the, the, the primary way that we cope is through underfunctioning. So this is back to that point at the beginning that we come home from work and we're already tired and we go, I know, honey, what would you like me to do? And I'll just do that without any emotional engagement. Uh, you want dinner? Okay, I'll do dinner. Do you want do you play with the kids? Okay, right, I'll play with the kids. And we just, it's under-functioning. There's no emotional engagement because we actually don't believe that we can contribute anything to this moment. So I'll just do what you say, and then hopefully we can have sex later. So uh, it looks like under, over, under and over-functioning. It is, okay, now here's, I want to spell out what anxiety looks like so we can kind of grab hold of it a little bit more tangibly. Uh, anxious thinking is either-or thinking. It's either-or thinking. It's black and white thinking. Um, anxious leaders, anxious church leaders say, are you in the church or are you out? Are you in or are you out? That's anxious, that's anxious thinking. Sometimes I don't even know if I'm in my church. <laughs> like, like, I, you know, are you in or are you out? Are you submissive or rebellious? Those are your only two options. But can I disagree? No! I'm too anxious for that. You can go now. I sense the Spirit calling you on to another church. But it's, uh, it's either or. It's either or. It's black and white. Um, uh, you're right and, and you're wrong. And I'm right and you're... Like, it's just... It's always black and white. It's Star Wars. It's, it's people dressed in one way, and then there's the good guys and the bad guys. And I've been pastoring now for quite a few years, and it's hard for me to tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. I can't quite tell anymore. I know that Jesus saves me, and I'm born again. I'm not, that's not confusing to me. But either or thinking is a way to control a moment without being emotionally engaged in it. So we listen to our children, you have two children fighting, and they go, and you find out who's right and who's wrong, and then you correct them, and you go, great, I'm out of here, I hated that moment. Instead of actually engaging with your children and finding out what's really going on in the moment and loving your children through it, instead of just making edicts. You go to your room, you go over here, and I'm going to go over there. Either are thinking. Uh, anxiety is also serious. Here's one of the primary ways that you can tell if your home or workplace or church is not anxious, if there's humor there. Anxious churches, homes, workplaces are not funny. There's nothing funny. Everything is serious. And it's all got to be super right doctrine, and we're all going to do it right, and it's just, it's serious. Um, our second son, we adopted him from birth. His name is Toby, and he's a snowboarding dude. And if you were to see him, he'd go, yo, like he's on drugs, yo. So kind of say it slowly. And uh, he really loves Jesus, and he's sharing his faith all the time, but he's a snowboarding dude. And he, he wears his pants up to here, which is super dumb. And he wears loud Hawaiian shirts with khaki pants and pink sneakers. And he goes, Dad, it's going to be in in a year. I tr trust me. <laughs> okay. Um, and so he has two hobbies in life, uh, snowboarding and irritating his mother. And I, and I cannot tell at any given point in time which she enjoys more. And so I, re I remember this one day he comes home from school, and uh, he says, hey, Mom, uh, my wife is German. She has a German heritage. And, uh, and, she, and he comes home and he says, hey, Mom. Yes, Toby. I'm thinking of getting a swastika tattooed on my cheek. And, and she goes, what? Yeah, it wouldn't be big. It would just be a small one here. And then she goes, no, son of mine, and how dare you, and, you know, and your pastor's getting on and on it goes, right? And he goes, what? It was just, it's, it's no big deal. It's, and so, uh, but I've, I've taken my course, so I know what to do. So I, I, so I said to Toby, I says, Toby, uh, and he goes, yeah, Dad? I go, why don't you get a swastika tattooed on all four cheeks? And then he thinks this is super funny. 
and then we're done. We're done. It's not fun for him anymore. It's just funny to me. Don't you think it's funny? I think it's because it's super funny. I just think it's funny. <clears throat> he finally did get a tattoo. You know what he got? Well, he has a Bible. And, but he also has a pizza cutter. That's <laughs> 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 stupid. Pizza, pizza cutter. And, it's a, and there's a drip coming from it. He goes, Dad, everybody thinks it's blood. It's just pizza sauce. <laughs> He thinks that's super funny. He just can go on about that. You have no idea how, how funny he thinks his pizza cutter tattoo is. <clears throat> um, Non-anxious homes are funny. It's fun. Non-anxious churches are fun. We don't take each other too seriously. Because we're all just trying. Aren't we all just trying? I'm just trying. And if we all have to live up to this standard of whatever, oh, God help us. I mean, I want to be a loving man. Really, I do. It is tiring. So uh, uh, anxiety also looks like being rule-based. Is your solution to problems to come up with a rule? I love that. Doesn't it sound clean? Look, let's just all, you're not following, I know, let's just, I remember with my kids, they weren't reading their Bible, so what I did is I got up with them early in the morning, and at 7.30 in the morning, we read the Bible together. And I got, I got a rule, I had a rule, and it was working so well for six months. <laughs> and I had to come up with a new rule, and just created rules. I felt super good father-like with all my rules. Uh, labeling. We just label people. You're rebellious. Oh, you're good. I like you. No, I don't know if I can trust you. We just label people. We label them. You're an addict. Uh, it's reactive. Uh, it's not thinking. It's just reacting. It's just saying stuff. It's self-centered. Anxious people take everything personally because it's all about them. So somebody comes and, and points out something in your life. What are you trying to say? That you, what, what, you're trying to say you're better than me? Is that what you're trying to say? You're trying to say that you're better than me. Oh, I get it. This is a racial thing. I understand what's going on here. It's just reactive. It's, uh, we take it all personally. Your wife says, you know, honey, do you know where you're driving? What are you trying to say? I'm not a good driver. You think I don't know the city? You think you know the city better than me? Just anxiety. Is it a, it's a distorted lens through which we interpret life. It's a distorted lens through which we interpret life. And if there's a root of anxiety in us, then the world is our enemy. Can't see Jesus. He's not asleep in the boat. He's not anywhere around. And we're just managing life. I'd like to end with a cycle that uh, you might find helpful. This is just one common cycle, a fear cycle. There's others, but it's, it's just one way of thinking that we might be able to, uh, to uh, that might, you might find helpful. I'll try to go through this quickly. So uh, let's start with hurt. Do you see where that is? So someone hurts us. Um, hurt, I think, is perceived disrespect. We feel disrespected as men. The things in, in parentheses are kind of more masculine. But I, I feel disrespected. I don't feel honored. And so I feel fear or shame or rejection. And what hurt often looks like is anger. Uh, that's what it looks like. Uh, there's a definition in psychology, if you want to write this down. Anger is hurt plus fear. That's the definition of anger. So you're, you're hurt and then you're afraid that you can't fix this moment. And so anger is an attempt to conquer your hurt and fear. So then we become demanding. <clears throat> and we do, we do things that we shouldn't do, and we say things that we shouldn't say. And we have this kind of self-serving justice. And there's a, there's a saying that hurt people hurt people. And so we get hurt, and so we hurt others. And then in that, we sin. And from that sin 
comes guilt. And then we feel alienated, we feel defeated, and judged. Uh, there's another, I'm just giving you some definitions that might be helpful for you. Depression is often described as anger turned inward. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was addicted to pornography. And I remember saying over and over in my head, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself. I would uh, teach a Bible study and then go off. You had to buy porn back in those days. You couldn't just click a button. I would lead a Bible study and then go buy pornography. Horrible, eh? I just hated myself. I was just, I was so angry with me. I was lonely and depressed. And so then what guilt does is it drives us to withdraw. And what withdrawal distance typically looks like, uh, where distance often leads us, is into lust. Uh, I feel alienated. I feel misunderstood and judged and far away. And so lust is an attempt to find comfort in the middle of a very lonely existence. This is one of the reasons why I think what you're doing here with a men's retreat is so outstanding. Most middle-aged men don't have friends. Most middle-aged men. The farther away you get from university or high school, the fewer friends you have. And then we wonder why we're so addicted to lust. It's our only way to find some sense of connection because the chemicals that it releases in our brain are the same chemicals that would be released if we were connected to others. So at least we have the chemical reaction, if not the reality. But of course, those chemical reactions aren't really satisfying the longings of our soul. And so that's why we become addicts to lust. Because we think a little bit more intense, a little bit more perverted, a little bit more frequent, a little bit more graphic. And it keeps heightening itself to get the same chemical rush, but it's never satisfying the longings of our soul. And so when we're distant, we just love ourselves instead of loving others. And we make sex and work and play all about self-love. <clears throat> you know, at men's retreats, sometimes I'll tell them, I guess I am doing it now. I'll say, uh, I'll say, I don't, you know, I don't think you've ever made love to your wife. And there'd be some studly guy in the back who's, yeah, right, you haven't seen, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I'll say, no, 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 I, I didn't say that you never had sex. I just said you've never made love. That you've never known how to emotionally engage with your wife physically. You, you don't know how to do that. You, you don't know how to drop your guard and actually be intimate. You just know how to have sex. Because I'm engaged in an act that looks like intimacy but my heart is so full of anxiety and fear and rejection and loneliness and judgment and confusion and depression, I can't let you in there. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend intimacy, but I'm a million miles away emotionally. And so then we engage in lust and we distant, and then when we distance ourselves, we hurt people even more, which makes us sin ourselves, which makes us more guilty, and so we distance even more, and we get caught in a cycle of demand and distance. And I believe, in it, which is anger and lust, which is typically where men find themselves, swinging between those extremes. And the good news is, and we're going to explore this tomorrow, I can hardly wait for tomorrow, is that we're going to talk about how Jesus sets us free from this cycle and enables us to enter into our God-given destiny. So in conclusion, what does anxiety look like in your life? I have, to, I have to be honest with you. I didn't know what anxiety looked like in me. I knew what it looked like in others. I, I couldn't connect my behaviors to anxiety. I, I, didn't, I couldn't make that link. And nobody was helping me. And so I just had to do behavior management because I really couldn't see how this was being driven by my faithless concern, my worry about myself and others, and I couldn't find Jesus. I couldn't see how my sinful behavior 
was being driven by those fears. So what does anxiety look like in your life? For me, it looks like withdrawal. I'm a distancer. I'm not a demander. I don't have much of a temper. I don't really get upset. I'm too Canadian for that. Um, but I distance. I just go to my happy place, and I'm trained in counseling so I can look super kind and caring and just be a million miles away. I, I, I can do that super easily. That's what it looks like for me. What triggers the fear cycle in your life? What triggers anger and lust in your life? What triggers it? What sets you off where you're feeling hurt and get angry, where you're feeling judged and alone and so you self-comfort? What, what, how does that work for you? The primary way that we get out of anxiety uh, is we put our life in slow motion so we can see what's going on before. The, if you go to a counselor, I'm telling you, that's all they're going to do is they put your anger into slow motion so you can see what leads up to the anger and then you know how to find Jesus in that place. That's all that's ever going on. And so I'm inviting you tonight as you pray, as you talk together, spend some time discussing what anxiety looks like inside of you. And if you say that you're not anxious, God bless you. Um, and that's just an anxious statement that you made. And that, because we are, we just are, because we're fallen. But God wants to come and bring healing into those places. And the place that it starts is by being honest. It's our first act is to be honest and to actually be able to verbalize what anxiety looks like in our lives.